Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Seasoned. I'm Chef Plum. And I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. I'm the senior producer of the show. For the past few months, some of our favorite people in our local food world have joined me on adventures all around the state, talking with chefs and farmers and the families behind restaurants we want you to know about. And I have to say, as the people behind the scenes planning and recording some of those conversations, my fellow seasoned producers and I wanted to get in on the fun. Ahead on Seasoned, Robin and I head to the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale to talk with the curator of the artist Georgia O'Keeffe's personal recipe collection. We even bake a pie from that collection, too. And producer Emily Cherish introduces you to a millennial nose-to-tail butcher she's excited about in her New York City neighborhood. Also, contributor Catrice Claudio shines a light on the chef behind 29 Markle Court in Bridgeport. It's a brand new restaurant that's getting a lot of buzz. Mm -hmm. We wanted to see for ourselves what magic is going on down there. (laughs) But first, did you know that the modernist American painter Georgia O'Keeffe's personal recipe collection is right here in our state? The Alfred Stieglitz and Georgia O'Keeffe Archive at Yale has been added to over time. Georgia originally donated the many letters and writings of Stieglitz, her husband, a prominent photographer and gallerist, in 1953. She added some of her own correspondence and writings to the archive before her death in 1986. The archive was recently added to again when Georgia O'Keeffe's recipe collection went to auction. Art and food lovers can head down to the Beinecke Library in New Haven and see the recipes. Many are even handwritten by the artist herself. Plum and I sat down with Nancy Cool to talk about the recipe collection and what people might learn about Georgia O'Keeffe from the recipes she held on to. Nancy curated the recipe exhibit, which is part of a larger exhibit throughout the Beinecke called Revisiting the Past, Imagining the Future. It's on display now through July 9th. You'll find a link to it on our show page, as well as images from our time at the Beinecke and a link to the digital archive of the recipes themselves. There are hundreds to click through. It's at ctpublic.org seasoned. We started our conversation with Nancy by getting the backstory of how she and her team acquired Georgia's recipe collection. The Georgia O'Keeffe recipe collection is part of a collection of writings and manuscript documents that came to the library in 2020. The recipes came to auction at Sotheby's. They belonged initially, along with a great number of other, the auction um, included paintings, artworks, other things that O'Keeffe had collected, photographs by Stieglitz of O'Keeffe, all kinds of different things that O'Keeffe left with a man named Juan Hamilton, an artist who had been her assistant, her studio assistant and friend. And then Juan Hamilton inherited these objects and he just parted with them in 2020. So when the New York Times, I think, is where I read about the auction, In addition to these uh, recipes, there's a a dress book from the 1920s documenting O'Keeffe's many uh, relationships with artists and galleries in the 1920s in New York. Some of her writings, uh, she wrote an autobiography late in her life, and so drafts of parts of that book and writings about the landscape and about her houses, those kinds of things were also part of Juan Hamilton's collection. So we at the library, my colleagues and I, 
made an effort and were successful in acquiring much of the manuscript material in that sale in a private treaty before the sale so that those materials would stay together, could come join the rest of the archive here, be available to researchers, be part of the really rich and full collection that we have here documenting O'Keefe's life and her work and her homes and all of those. When when this stuff first shows up, Robin, it's got to be like going through buried treasure. It certainly does seem like buried treasure, or it is a treasure trove of recipes. Yeah. It's true. It's absolutely spectacular. It includes mostly material from the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, into the 80s. So by the time we're talking about these recipes, O'Keefe is in her 60s and older. So, you know, she lived, she and, O'Keefe and, and her partner, her husband, Alfred Stieglitz, they lived in New York. They lived in a hotel. They lived at the Shelton. Um, you can see on, on letters that sometimes uh, she's addressing him just by the room number. And uh, they had, you know, she had a studio there. I think it was probably not like we think about living in a hotel in a single room might be a little bit different from that. But nevertheless, they they did have this kind of different way of living than maybe we would expect. So in those early years in their marriage in the 20s and, you know, when she begins, she starts going to the southwest in 29. She makes her first trip to New Mexico. She learned how to drive and then drove across country, which is quite unusual wow. at the time. Learn yeah. how to drive and then drive across country. <laughs> yeah. Not common among wow. women of the 1920s. Uh-huh. Yeah. So she didn't maybe have a kitchen of the kind that we might think of as a kind of home kitchen in those years living at the Shelton. Yeah. But it's in when she moves to New Mexico and She has ended up with two houses in New Mexico nearby one another, but then she really begins to settle in there. She spends half the year or part of the year in New Mexico for a number of years while Alfred Stieglitz is still alive in New York, and she lives part of the year in New York with him and travels to the Southwest for part of the year. Mm -hmm. And then after his death in the middle 40s, she moved to the Southwest more full-time. And that's really, I think, when these recipes and her garden, too, becomes quite a different part of her life. Yeah. And when you see those pictures of Georgia O'Keeffe cooking in her kitchen, it's in New Mexico. It's That's those that kitchen. Yes, absolutely. So before we talk about, get into like some of the recipes and talk about Georgia O'Keeffe home cook, help our listeners understand her designation as one of the most important modernist American painters ever. Mm. Yeah, and she, that's not an exaggeration, right? Not, not at all, not at all. She is one of the most important American painters, certainly an important woman painter, though that's a distinction that she might not have claimed for herself. I think the scholarship suggests she much preferred just to be a painter and to be accepted on those terms. Though, as I, you know, talking about her driving, she is in the art scene and in the art world at a time when it's not very common for women to become prominent artists. Alfred Stieglitz exhibited some of her charcoal drawings for the first time in 1916. So over the next several years, her work became increasingly important. She She's well known for some of the New York skyscrapers. She painted the skyscrapers from the Shelton sometimes, from the windows there. So yeah, so she becomes well known for those kinds of paintings before she really begins to paint the South. The paintings that, that she maybe is most well known for now, those are kind of a little bit after this period um, when she's first in New York with Stieglitz. By now, her paintings are in all of our museums and all of our galleries. We see them and know them. Her flower paintings are especially well known and especially important. 
and unlike any paintings that preceded them, because they are so familiar to us, these extraordinary views and interesting ways of looking at these objects that interested O'Keeffe, because those paintings are so familiar to us, it can be difficult to remember, to imagine how shocking and surprising and unusual they were when they were made. Mm -hmm. There was nothing like that. No, you know, the idea that flowers and botanica might be a woman's subject, and then O'Keeffe confronts that in this really yeah. unusual way. It is a kind of confrontation when you see those paintings. So those are all parts of the story of O'Keeffe's prominence. And by the time we're talking about these recipes, it's in the 1940s that O'Keeffe has a very big exhibition at the Chicago Art Institute, another at, at the Met. Um, the Brooklyn Museum publishes a catalog of her work for the, the first of its kind. So by the time we're talking about the 1950s, O'Keeffe is an established, prominent painter, American painter. And her paintings of the Southwest are, are beginning to be more known and are more part of that body of work that people are aware of and seeing. People who are Georgia O'Keeffe fans, they know the big flower paintings and and associate her with the skulls and the landscapes, but the recipes maybe not so much. So what are we talking about when we talk about Georgia O'Keeffe's personal recipe collection? A variety of different kinds of things. There are recipes in O'Keeffe's own hand on standard three by five cards. Some of them are yellow. <laughs> um, some of them are slightly bigger than those white cards, but the cards that you imagine your own recipes, your mother's recipes, yeah. your grandmother's recipes, your grandfather's recipes maybe, uh, those cards are exactly what we're talking about here. So those are the objects themselves. The collection includes writing in O'Keeffe's hands, like I said, very basic recipes. Sometimes they, they're almost, they seem like techniques more than recipes to my mind. You know, they are there's a recipe for blackberry juice that's just like berries, water, <laughs> stew until soft is like essentially the whole recipe. So there's that kind of thing. Um, there are typed recipes and recipes that have been clipped out of newspapers or magazines, or in some cases, it's difficult to know. I was looking at some of them this morning, trying to see how difficult it would be to identify some of those. And it would be, but it's very much the kinds of things you would imagine in any recipe box. Yeah. That you'd find in any kitchen. Except I did see one in the collection that is a, the recipe was written on the prescription pad of Dr. Constance Freeze, and she was the chief resident of New York Hospital. And I just got such a kick out of this because we know people who know about Georgia O'Keeffe and the way she ate and cooked, she is associated with healthy eating and being very health conscious and also a great lover of nature and of organic farmers. So it seems sort of appropriate that this prescription would be a, a recipe or that a recipe would be this prescription. It's Yeah, it's a beautiful kind of metaphor uh, that we can think about it that way. Archives offer us those kinds of things sometimes in beautiful ways. O'Keefe corresponded with this New York doctor from the Southwest when she was there. She was her doctor for, it seems like, quite a long time. She always uh, addresses her dear Constance Freeze, says her whole name, <laughs> and signs her letters, Georgia O'Keefe. But they're very, you know, like, my trip was wonderful. I'm well except for my shoulder, that, that sort of thing. So you can imagine if you were a person who had a doctor in the old days who lived far away, um, you would correspond this way. And just in that very same way, like any of the rest of us, you might write down a recipe on whatever was to hand. So there are other examples of similar kinds of things. There's a recipe on an announcement for an exhibition at the Art Institute of Chicago, written on the back of that in O'Keeffe's hand. These are kinds of things that you're, you're also pointing to something that, that is a way 
scholars do research in archives, it might be easy to imagine that it, that you would find a document and that document would help you understand very specifically where someone was at a given time or what they thought about a given thing or what they'd said to a particular person. And though that is sometimes the case, as often as not, Scholars have to kind of triangulate between different pieces of information. So they know about do the doctor and her correspondence with the doctor and then also find this recipe. And then you can kind of piece together a time frame based on those kinds of things. So it may be possible to date something because it's related to this other archival material for which we do have a date. So in those ways, these recipes, though they're new to the collection and there's not anything quite like them in the Stieglitz and O'Keefe archive here, it's my sense that they will fill in gaps. They will create new kind of connections that scholars haven't been able to make before in terms of all different kinds of ways of thinking about O'Keeffe's life and her artworks. You know, it's funny. The, yeah. the, the recipe she was just talking about, Robin, kind of goes along with what I was thinking when I was going through the recipes, like seeing just the, the sometimes, you know, whether it's a little card or whether it's, like you said, written on, on the prescription pad or written on a, a flyer from an art opening. Like, I'm like, where does... Why did that happen? Like, was she like, this is like, they're serving this great dish at this art opening. How do you make that? And then just grab something to write it on and shove it in her pocket. Like, I don't know. I think that's why it's so fun to me to figure out where this stuff came from. And you can tell a lot about a person. I feel like it's culinary archaeology almost. Like we're trying to learn about this person from their food, which is pretty cool. And we know that George O'Keefe was very known to be a health conscious lover of healthy food. I mean, if you look at some of these recipes, oh boy, <laughs> everything from brewer's yeast to let's have a smoothie with raw liver in it. Sounds delicious. <laughs> um, but uh, how do you think that shows up in her in, in the recipes when you look through them, being a health conscious person? Yeah, well, the recipes, I, they're they are very spare, aren't they? I mean, yeah. many of them are, like I said, there's that one that I was just saying is just, um, you know, berries and juice right. and, or berries and water. Um, there are others that are quite like that, very few ingredients. So I think we we can tell something about the way O'Keefe lived because of the simplicity of these things. I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that all of these things are related, that we're talking about her paintings, her aesthetic sensibility, her way of viewing the things in her house and right. in her life. There are her two houses in New Mexico. Scholars, some scholars think those two houses are really two of her most elaborated and, and conceived works. You know, they're, wow. they are these kind of in themselves spaces that O'Keefe built in certain ways. And if you think about the kinds of things we see in her work that we find, you know, there are these kind of ways she revisits the same things and looks at them in different ways, different perspectives on things. I mean, I think that's happening in the recipes. If you are thoughtful and think about the way she's, you know, you can see the way she is looking at particular kinds of food over like the vegetables, right? All the, all the soups you mentioned, right? There's, there is this kind of uh, sense of, of a overarching sensibility. Mm -hmm. I, I think sensibility is a way to describe what I mean. Do you have that? Did you have that feeling when you were reading them? Totally. And you said earlier that the recipes are spare and they're simple. And I found one that I, I just want to read that to me, to my ear and my mind, it just felt very poetic to me. So the recipe is called cucumbers. Yeah. Oh, this is a great one. I love Here it this is. One. Peel cucumbers, slice very thin, sprinkle salt, let stand half hour, dry, arrange layers with chopped mint, cayenne, cover with sour cream, chill. That's it. That's the recipe. It sounds so, delicious. Yes, also. it's like, it reminded me of like William, Carlos Williams. I mean, the plums, this is just to say, like, yeah. this is not meant to be a poem, but, you know, you can find things in these very simple recipes that, you know, kind of turn into something else in your ear or your mind. Oh, absolutely. I mean, part of what I'm thinking about as you're saying that is, 
that there is a relationship between the language of a recipe and the language of a poem, right? They're mm. both about concision. They're both evocative of sensory experience. Right? So, so it's not a stretch to suggest that that is a way to think about that language, right? It is very beautiful and suggestive. And it's always my sense that a recipe is less a set of instructions than it is a kind of framework for improvisation. So I think that is interesting too, with regard to language and with thinking about how this kind of language gives us a different way of thinking about George O'Keefe than the other kinds of writings that we have and the other kinds of modes of language that we have much more readily, like letters or the drafts of writings that she's done. Right? This is a, in a different context. It gives us a different view of her mind. There's a recipe that we looked at, too, that I liked. It was a, I think we weren't quite sure what exactly what it was, <laughs> but we guessed chicken flautas. It's not so much a recipe as it's here's four sentences that I'm pretty sure she probably wrote down to remind herself how to make something with no intention of anyone ever trying to recreate it. And so I was wondering, when you look at something like that, and you know, because I think you can tell a lot about food and a person's history just by what they were eating. We know Georgia was born in Wisconsin, spent time in her life in Virginia and Texas and South Carolina, Chicago, New York. But we think of her most of the time, we think of New Mexico. Do you think the recipes in the collection or anything that stands out kind of connects the places she lived? A recipe like that has to come from that time frame in her life. I think that's a, a really wonderful observation. I mean, there are things we can know and assumptions we can make. And then the recipes also kind of elaborate. So this is not to your question about geography, though there yeah. would be a lot. There is a lot to say about Georgia O'Keeffe and the landscape, the different landscapes in which she lived, the different communities in which she, she participated through her life. But I was going to say, We've been talking about the simple recipes, of which there are many. There are others that are more complicated. We've been talking about the recipes that are in her handwriting. There are others that seem to that are in other people's handwriting. Right. Assistants, maybe cooks, maybe we know from her letters and from other you know evidence in her in her life that she did sometimes have someone who was cooking for her oh. or with her. Um, even the cookbook that does exist was written by someone who um, claims that O'Keefe taught her how to cook while she was working for her. <laughs> so there's that kind of relationship that's documented in this too. And it's easy to latch on to one of these things. Like for instance, O'Keefe's handwriting is so compelling in itself. Yes. Um, on the recipes, which I think are the, the versions of her handwriting that you all are most familiar with, right. it's much uh, more legible immediately than it is in her letters, which are much more emotive. And there's a kind of dynamism in her script that is contained in a library, in a card written for um, a recipe, you know, on that an index file card. But so there are all these other different kinds of things that we can start to know about what it might have been like in her kitchen, right? Mm -hmm. in, at any given time, which isn't the same all the time, which doesn't have the same cast of characters all the time. Um, she's a person who lived in a lot of different places. I think in all of those different places, there might be different things to know. So that's all part of the story too, I think. It's like, it just shows the food influence, you know, like yeah. how the, the, the geographical area influenced some of those recipes and some of her cooking, which I think is really cool. They're just in terms of the, geogra the geography of, of New Mexico, it's I think it's pretty well known and well documented that one of the things she loved about the house in Abiquiu, which was a ruin when essentially when she bought it and she restored it and really made it her own, mm -hmm. is that it had a garden. 
a very workable garden, a space where she could really have a garden of consequence. And that was meaningful to her and important to her. That's a part of this story, too, is that you mentioned that O'Keefe grew up in Wisconsin on a farm, on a dairy farm. So I I think um, she's so cosmopolitan in a certain way and so tied to the Southwest in a certain way that it can be easy to forget that she's also a Midwesterner and that that is part of her story and her narrative and, and I suspect part of her palate, part of what... She liked to eat, right, as we all do, is derived from our history. So I imagine that's a part of this story, too. One, I don't know. I mean, I'm speculating, obviously, but it seems likely that these are all parts of her story that we could find ways to thread together. Yeah. You mentioned the handwritten recipes. And so we know that this collection is hundreds of recipes. Now, you can't display hundreds of recipes, but you've curated a few things that anyone who wants to come into the Beinecke and is curious about Georgia O'Keeffe's recipes can see. And so in a case upstairs where it's displayed, there are a collection of these handwritten recipes that you have picked. And so I wondered, as the curator of this collection, what was it about those recipes that spoke to you? And um, do you have personal feelings about them? It might surprise you why I chose the pieces that I did, because I didn't choose them necessarily because of the recipes that are on those cards. What I wanted viewers to be able to see is a kind of representative sample of what this big collection looks like and how the objects themselves show evidence of their use. One of them is quite badly smudged. (laughs) It's difficult to read. So the reason it's difficult to read is because it's written with a fountain pen in O'Keeffe's green ink she sometimes used. That's badly smudged. So it's a great example of the kind of of material that is in lots of representations of O'Keeffe's handwriting, but just it's a very special and specific instance, right? It's it's a recipe that she's obviously used, that the corners of the pages are, are bent, you know, like that kind of thing. So there would be many ways to curate an exhibition from these recipes and to select, I think there are four of them on view, and there would be many ways to imagine suggesting a menu or uh, thinking seasonally, right? And I didn't do any of that. What I thought might be of interest to viewers would be some sense of these as objects that O'Keeffe both made in terms of their being written in her hand and used. And so I chose things that showed those kinds of tactile visual representations of of her own hands on them. Their artwork in their own little way, right? In their own way, absolutely. I mean, that's... That's not necessarily always true of every time you look at an artist's letter to somebody, but O'Keeffe's handwriting is not like any handwriting I've ever seen before. It's incredibly distinct Mm -hmm. and specific, and I never make a mistake that I'm looking at someone else's (laughs) handwriting. You always know when you're looking at George O'Keeffe's handwriting. So you read us a letter before we pressed record here that was to her husband, and One of the things that really stood out to me in the letter when you read it, just from hearing it one time, was she talks about one of the people who cooked for her. Uh, She talks about it. And in my brain, it came across very fondly, almost like this is my friend. And I think when it comes to food, you tend to share things with your friends more and more and more. She actually is sharing and asking her friends, her friend, the cook's opinion on one of her paintings which wow. I think is really, really interesting to see the relationship that was there, you know? I don't know enough about this woman and O'Keefe's relationship with her to say yeah. more about it, but I think what you're saying um, is in this letter, so I totally agree. So I wonder if we maybe could talk about a few of the recipes. Even though Georgia was a healthy eater, there are plenty of recipes for desserts and sweets in her collection. There's cookies, cakes, frostings, meringues, 
an Italian panettone. Is that how you say it? That mm -hmm. bread, that wonderful mm -hmm. bread. That was right. Yeah. Okay. Homemade ice cream. But my favorite one was the recipe, and and Plum pointed this out too. He said, "Did you see what Georgia wrote about the recipe called oh. Rich Cookies?" So this is filed under C for cookies, because if you look on the digital archive, which anyone can do, maybe you're not, you know, in New Haven, but you can go online and see her digital, all of these recipes digitized. And under C, you'll see rich cookies. This is what Georgia writes. I think, Georgia, these are a bother, <laughs> but good. Perhaps dough could be modified by adding another egg and more flour. So this is about her experimenting. Um, so that it could be rolled, chilled in icebox and sliced. So I love that she says icebox. That's another thing that like dates the the recipe. And just this idea that she's, there's a little footnote in here that says, these are a pain. I love that. These yeah. are a bother. Like I, I, I've written, try to write recipes down for myself. I've done it. And I'm like, this is really not a fun recipe to do. But <laughs> I love that she, in the middle of her writing this down, goes, these are a bother. <laughs> I, I love was it. thinking that maybe that made it so that like, they were so delicious that she made the note that they're a bother to make, but like worth it. But worth it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the other thing that when you're talking about that recipe that, that occurred to me is, um, you know, who's the audience for that? Is she writing that to herself, oh, right? Yeah. To whom is she saying you could try it this way? Um, yeah. Right. It's a really interesting, I mean, we know she did have other people cooking in her kitchen, maybe with her and maybe for her at other times. But so there is this kind of community um, idea in that too, in some way, but it also suggests that way in which we might, as we write notes to ourselves, include ourselves as the person to whom we're, you know, or was you, she you taking, might try it this was way. she taking the recipe down when one of the cooks were making it? She's watching it going, wow, this is a yeah, pain maybe. in the butt to make. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? I mean, that's you know, the fun part. That's one of the wonderful things about archives is that there is always room for and the necessity for a certain kind of imagination, um, which I think is also part of what you all are interested in, in coming to these recipes and thinking about what they mean now, um, what it's like to make them now as you're making it. Are you somehow in the footsteps of this, you know, extraordinary person? Yeah. And, you know, how when we're tasting something that she made, you're having a physical experience that is in this peculiar way shared, right? Yeah, like true um, Georgia O'Keeffe fans could even do a little dinner at their house. There could be birthday like... party events, <laughs> yes. absolutely. Where we all serve the B vitamin smoothie. <laughs> it's gonna no. be great, it's gonna be great. Yeah, what a fun, it's, it's, it's like a journey back in time looking at this stuff, it's really fun. Mm -hmm. I've, I've had a lot of fun doing it. And for people who are fans of Georgia or have been inspired by her, this is like a way to know her in a deeper way or a different way than what you're going to find when you flip through the books about her that will talk about her beautiful, gigantic flowers and her career and her art. And there's this other side to that, know about her. I think that's so important. And we keep all of these things so that George O'Keefe is a proper genius, right? An enormous brilliance in the world. Yes. And also someone who is working daily in her kitchen in this same way that anybody is. Um, and those connections are meaningful. Those kinds of ways in which we all are, these things we all have in common, including eating for pleasure and nourishment, they're meaningful, those connections. Truly. Well, Nancy Cole, thank you so much for being with us and spending time talking about Georgia O'Keeffe and the, her recipe collection. We really, really appreciate it. I have enjoyed it so much. You're wonderful. So fun. We appreciate it. Thanks, Nancy. 
That was Nancy Cool of Yale's Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library in New Haven. If you want to cook like Georgia O'Keeffe, visit our website for photos and links to information about the exhibit and the digital recipe archive. Go to ctpublic.org seasoned. You'll also see a video of me and Robin making one of Georgia's recipes in my kitchen. It's a sesame fried chicken with shake and bake vibes. <laughs> it's really delicious. We made a savory Swiss onion pie, too. We'll link to both recipes on our show page, but to give you a taste of what baking the pie was like, we're sharing a clip. My favorite part of the recipe is it tells you if you're going to serve it for an entree, cut a large piece. If you're going to serve it for an appetizer, cut a small piece, <laughs> yeah. which cracked me up. So I'm excited to see this dairy and onions. It should be fun. Yeah, and I love a good savory pie. All right, let's get started. we got to cut some onions up. The recipe says to cut these into small pieces. Yeah. She doesn't specify slices or, so we're gonna cut it into small pieces. <laughs> the recipe calls for four large onions. Mm -hmm. The time frame of this recipe versus now, large onions I think can mean different things, don't you? Yeah, and think of it this way too. Georgia's onions were likely coming from her organic garden. Right. So they were probably smaller than what you would get in a grocery store. 100%. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna actually just take this, I'm gonna cut it straight down like this. And then she says cut it into small pieces, no rhyme or reason, so I'm just gonna give it, cut it into small pieces and let those different layers kind of be my pieces of the onion. Always cut on the flat side so you don't hurt your hand. And then I'm gonna take out, I don't know if Georgia did, but the root end, I'm gonna take it out. Yep. I don't know if she did or not, but I have a feeling she didn't. She probably used every part of the vegetable. Yeah, I'm guessing so too. And she says large onions, so I'm cutting large onions here, but I have a feeling that we don't have to do all four of these, but we, we can. But our pie will just be extra oniony. <laughs> Okay, so one of the fun things about this is you cut these onions up and then she wants you to sweat them in a pan with butter, mm -hmm. but not brown them. So right. it's a little bit difficult to do that, to not brown them. We're following the recipe yep. as Georgia would have made it. Right, doesn't specify how much butter, just says use butter. Nope. So we'll put some butter in here, let this melt down. What I figured was using my culinary brain, instead of browning the onions, let's put all the onions in a smaller pan so there's less surface area. Less surface area means they can sweat as opposed to, you know, start to caramelize on the bottom of them. Okay. So does that make sense? Sure. <laughs> and we're just going to get them sort of translucent, not brown, but... No. And we're just going to let these guys soften up. Beautiful. I'm going to put them back on the burner. I want to put a pinch of salt in those onions of so course. bad. Of course. But Georgia says no salt on them right away, so... When she made this herself, she might have added salt, but it just didn't make it into the notes. Yeah, maybe it didn't. So back to our recipe now. We've got our onions. While those are working, let's mix together our milk and egg mixture. How about you crack the eggs? I think it calls for three eggs to be cracked in there, right? I'm going to uh, get the milk. I need one pint of milk. So crack the <gasps> eggs. Okay, that was good. That was awesome. Totally still usable. Watch this trick. <laughs> oh, no. Where do I put the shell? I just, I'll take that for you. So uh, I did tell you to crack the egg. I did not tell you to crack the egg in the bowl. Sorry. So that's my fault. <laughs> Let's put it in here. Okay. <laughs> that was awesome. So I figure while well, you crack those eggs, I will get the milk measured out. How about that? Okay. Thanks, Bob. Right. Georgia, in this particular recipe, said use one pint of milk because I'm assuming milk was sold in pints back then. So just to make sure we're exact, I'm going to break out my scale. I'm going to put it on ounces. There we go. And we're going to add 16 ounces or one pint of milk. Let me just give our onions a toss. So we've got our 16 ounces of milk ready to go. Measured out perfectly. You've got three eggs cracked there. Yep. Uh, one on the board. 
two in there. Sorry. That's great. I'm kidding. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a chef, so of course I want to salt the taste. I'm going to get a nice, healthy pinch of kosher salt. Yeah. She doesn't say what salt to use. I don't know if she ever would. No, because Georgia O'Keefe is not a cookbook author. Yeah. She's not writing these recipes for a book. She's just a home cook who collected recipes from different places and friends. And so we're just going by her notes. Okay, sounds good. So we got a little of that. Now we need to add a little paprika in there. If you want to reach in here and grab a little whisk. It says that when you were doing this to mix this lightly, beat the eggs a little lightly first to start, and then add the milk. There we go. Is this beating lightly, Plum? I think so. Okay. I don't know. Now we're going to add the milk to it. Continue whisking? Keep whisking, yep, okay. mix it up. So essentially it's like you're starting to make a custard here, it seems like. I think that's good, call okay. it time. All right, our onions are just about there as well. So I've got a nine inch pie shell. Let's grab our onions. These are nicely softened, not and brown. not at all brown. Not brown, there we go. Lower heat, just let it ride, let it take its time. Mm -hmm. So she says if I'm right in the recipe, put the onions in the thing first, right? Yes. All right. Onions are going in. So look at this. Look how much room these onions take up in here. A lot. Right? Yeah. That takes up a lot of room. We still have to add this to it. So I think what we're going to do, we have to take some liberties to make it work. But I'm going to pour this in and then slowly move the onions around so it can get more in between them. What do you think? I think that would be Georgia approved. Our oven is preset to 375. And she says this takes about 15 minutes in there. So want to give it a shot? Yeah. All right, let's do it. Pop this guy in. So, Robin, we've been cooking for a little bit now. Let's grab this onion pie. Mm -hmm. Let's see if we got that all the way through. Feels like it. It's holding together. It certainly is. Look at that. Okay. 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 That looks that looks nice. Yeah. It smells really good. Cooked onions. Look How could this. that not smell good? There we are. All right. Okay. We're trying now the Swiss onion pie from Georgia, Georgia O'Keefe personal recipe collection. Her library. This looks good. I mean, the crust is nice. Let's see. All right. Here Ready? we go. Cheers. I don't like it. Wow. It needs salt, maybe, mm -hmm. but. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. I dig it. Mm. The onions really are the star of the show here. Because we don't brown them, they're sweet, but not too sweet. Mm -hmm. Georgia, this yeah. is a home run. Shout I, out to you. Yeah, I, I like it. I mean, maybe we can't paint like Georgia, but we can cook like her. Hey, this might become part of our repertoire. It's I really nice. It really is good. Mm -hmm. Don't forget, you can view images that Deputy Visuals Director Mark Murgo took of our time at the Beinecke. And there are links to the digital recipe archive at ctpublic.org slash seasoned. This has been a blast, Plum. Thanks for letting me hang. You can hang anytime, Robin. <laughs> I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. And I'm Chef Plum. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back after a quick break. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Season. I'm Chef Plum. Now, butchery is an art, too. Producer Emily Cherish wants you to meet a passionate young butcher just a few steps away from her New York City apartment. This was six months ago, at the grand opening of Prince Abu's Butchery in Astoria, Queens. I waited with hundreds of other people, excited to see a butcher shop unlike any we've seen before. This is not your average butcher shop. First off, it's owned by a 28-year-old. My name is Abu So, and I am the founder and owner of Prince Abu's Butchery. Second, the shop's design, vibe, overall experience is just as important as the meat. We're doing so much more than just selling meat. That's all due to the branding that we've done with the shop. Because of that, it's also become a hangout spot almost for a lot of a lot it's of the, the spot <laughs> it is <laughs> you know Emily. Yeah. yep yep and third there's usually drake playing Tell me where I, need to, to be, to I caught up with abu this week to talk about his one-of-a-kind butcher shop can you tell me what is whole animal butchery we are a whole animal butcher shop specializing in locally sourced meats Whole animal butchery is a butchery practice which involves purchasing the entire animal and or carcass to be butchered. Uh, Normally, in today's butcher world, you'll see butchers order meat cuts by the piece. So they'll order rib section, a ribeye section, they'll order a short loin. However, when it comes to whole animal butchery, you're purchasing the entire steer or cow or bull and breaking that entire carcass down in-house and selling every single cut, making use of that entire animal. So in turn, it's a more sustainable way of butchery and you're honoring that animal and and you have a greater respect for that animal you're not just purchasing that animal for that cut just figuring out a way to use the entire animal there's a there's a saying called uh nose to tail horn to hoof i love that this just doesn't look like a traditional butcher shop it feels like a place where you actually want to come and it feels fresh and it's a vibe why is that an important part of this i grew up working in my uncle's slaughterhouse as a kid and butcher shops for a long time have always had a very grim mm, and grim, no music. Yeah. Yeah. They've always had this kind of like intimidating uh, feel to them. And rightfully so, because you do have, you know, grown men and women in here with cleavers <laughs> chopping body parts. Like, That's I get true. it. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I honestly, I love that it doesn't look like a traditional butcher shop because that's what's possible when you have a butcher shop that's owned and operated by someone in their 20s. <laughs> yeah. So I took one of your butchery classes and you offer a line of butchery classes for people in the community or people that are interested in learning a bit about what is on our plate. Tell us about your classes that you offer here because it's a very interesting and I don't think there's 
anything like it in New York City. I, first off, you did great in the class. <laughs> <laughs> you did great, and I hope that the steak was good. Oh my God, butter, garlic, thyme, rosemary. Good, so good. and that's all you really need, mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we, we offer two classes now. One is a beef uh, rib section class, and then the other is a whole lamb class. It's a hands-on class. You come in and we break down, whether it's that beef rib section or the lamb, we break it down as a group. And you get to cut meat, uh, saw through bones, and at the end, you take home your own steak or cut of lamb. Can you tell me about your upbringing in this field? Like, why did you decide to get into it? I know you said your uncle had a slaughterhouse. Culturally, being involved in butchery is normal. From a young age all the way up to your old age. My family's from West Africa, and so that's just a normal thing. My earliest memory of slaughter is at nine years old, slaughtering a chicken. However, my parents tell me that I had been doing it before then. And then uh, when I turned 13, they allowed me to work at the slaughterhouse. And even then, that, that was, you're not even supposed to do that. You have to be the legal age of 17 to work in a slaughterhouse, but they had me there at 13. And I worked there all through high school. I only told my close friends that I was working there because I was kind of embarrassed. Mm. Mm. You know, with like live chickens and it stinks and sure, all that. Yeah, yeah. And like sheep and goat. I was, I was ashamed of it. Ultimately, the next step was to kind of progress and get into meat cutting. Started getting into the livestock game, selling, trading, raising livestock. It was just a constant progression. So we started selling meat on Instagram in January of 2020, which was crazy. That is amazing. We would just sell meat through DM. It was crazy. I mean, Whoa, it was DM. Yes, wow. it's DM. No website, no location. <laughs> The business wasn't even registered, wow. nothing. Like, there was, wow. there was nothing. 2020 pandemic hit, and the page exploded. The grocery stores, you remember the whole industrial mm. food chain system, that broke yep. down. But a model like ours, we were completely insulated from any of the trauma that they were experiencing. And by the summer of 2020, I could not take any more customers. What was that transition to becoming a physical space in Astoria? It's all new for us. We've never done this. We, we went from Instagram DM to this location in two and a half years. There's so much to learn. There's so much to do. There's so much to keep up with. And thankfully, I have many mentors and friends and family in not only the butcher industry, but the food industry as well. And so... We're just hanging on and, and just continuing to push forward. Abu, thank you so much for being on season. Yes, yes, Emily. You're the best. And I, I really, really appreciate this. That was producer Emily Cherish in conversation with Abu So, owner of Prince Abu's Butchery in Astoria, New York. The butchery has a website now. <laughs> and as always, you'll find Abu on Instagram, too. We'll have those links on our show page at ctpublic.org slash seasoned. I'm Chef Plum. You're listening to Seasoned. After a quick break, we'll meet the executive chef behind Bridgeport's newest buzzworthy restaurant and talk about how he defines new American cuisine.
Welcome back to Seasons. I'm Chef Plum. The next feature in our producer takeover was inspired by Catrice Claudio. She read about the opening of 29 Markle Court in Bridgeport and said, we have to go there. Of course I was game. I've known executive chef Damon Day Sawyer for years, and he's a talent we want you to know about. Damon, first of all, it's awesome to see you. You and I have known each other for a while. Yes. We've done some catering events in the past together, and I'm so excited for you and to see this place and come in here. And I can just, I, I can feel you when I walk in here, which is awesome. And wow. I think that's a, that's a testament to what you've got going on here. And, you know, you and I met through Rachel Lampin. Yep. You know, and then, of course, the way the culinary world goes, it moves fast. And, and then, like you said before, before we got on here, it kind of comes full circle, which right, I think right. is pretty fun, man. Right. Catrice, one of our producers who was sitting beside me here, is, hey. <laughs> saw what was going on. And I was just so excited for you, man. Tell the story a little bit. How did we get here? Well, how we got to this specific place, I think uh, my partner Wesley and my partner Aisha had an idea to have a little small kind of smoke shop next door. Okay. With some small bites and some brownies or something. Uh, this was connected to a, an existing restaurant. He was closing the business, and so there was an opportunity there. You know, we could, you know, broaden our horizon and not do a smoke shop with brownies and stuff. Or we can see if we can get Damon involved and uh, get a restaurant going, and that's what happened. They brought me down, seen the space, felt the energy of it, you know, looked at uh, the community, looked at what was needed, uh, looked at what I thought was missing from a chef's perspective in Bridgeport, um, as a black chef as well, what kind of food would I be producing if I got this space? And it all kind of just made sense in a very quick you know, flow in my mind. It just made sense, it felt good. And so I was like, yeah, let's just give it a shot. You can feel it here. I mean, if you look around, it's super intimate, but also super opulent. I feel like you wanted to roll the rug carpet out for the Bridgeport community. And it seemed very intentional with every detail that's here. Um, down to the menu choosing, you know, options that you're offering. It's impressive to say the least without being distracting. And I think that the community has a a refreshed sense of understanding of what options are available for them when it comes to building community, connecting with community, and in return. And speaking of community, it feels like this was one of those places where it really took a village to hold it down and bring it up. Absolutely. And what I've been noticing in some of your media outlets and articles is that you also uphold your own village. And it's heavy on the we here at 29 Marco. <laughs> so um, we have, we're here early in the morning and everybody's here ready to just be in support of whatever's needed. Um, what is the secret to building a solid team? What is it? What does it take to let go of all of that output to other folks so that they can help build the dream with you? Uh, being uh, extremely honest, being able to communicate, being able to put your emotions aside and listen to sound advice and criticism and then make decisions based off of uh, ideas and whatever ideas is more uh, effective. And that's, that's the route we go. And we put our emotions to the side to get that done. And I love that. Like, just out of curiosity, I know you have Tevin beside you, who's your sous chef. How is it matching minds with him and curating ideas with him? Nah, Tev is, is super passionate, like myself. And so when you put two passionate people together on a, one idea, then, you know, things happen. So, mm -hmm. you know, I kind of was uh, attracted to his his passion for food at a, at a young age. You know, it took, mm -hmm. you know I'm 45. Mm -hmm. He's 26. So your blood. For, for, yeah, so for, for you for you to have that that knack and that want, it was you know admirable for me to mm. say you know what let me let me bring him aboard because um, I know he's at least passionate about the ideas, 
and so we can go from there. You know what I'm saying? You know, so he's proven to be just that, and you know, and and some more. So, Dave, one of my favorite things that people still call us in our 40s young chefs. That makes me so happy. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, right, right. I want people to know that we are new. We are brand new baby. So there's going to be some kinks in the road. We're going to fall a couple of times before we start walking very strongly and before we start running. Um, so just be patient with us as we're patient with you. You know, I want I want to be a fixture in kind of showing people other ways to eat. There are other ideas and other ways to approach food. And it doesn't always have to be traditional. You know, you can start with a small plate, see where it takes you. And um, I think there's some exciting things around the corner for all of us because I have a wonderful team. And I'm excited for all of them as well. So, Sitting here in the dining room, it's just beautiful. I love the simple black chairs, mm. you know, the two tops that get spread out amongst a couple of four tops. And then the artwork on the walls um, is just gorgeous. And, you know, even goes, I, mean, I think the artwork and everything, it all just kind of fits, even the music that you had on when right. we came in here, right. it all just kind of fits, you know, and it feels very comfortable, mm-hmm. which I think is the word I'll use the most. Can we talk about this beautiful artwork? I love the, I love the, the finger painting piece here. Right. Can you just talk about what's on the walls and why it's here and what it means to you? So Satchmo was done by Five Fingers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Five Fingers is pretty well-known uh, artist in you know Connecticut. Finger painting. Shout out well, to Connecticut artists. <laughs> yeah. Well, Five Fingers he does does a lot of different kind of paintings. Right. Okay. Um, that's his piece. Uh, I bought that piece a couple years ago, rolled it up, put it in my my closet. A couple years later, we're like, "What do we do with this space?" And I was like, "Oh, yeah, I have a painting. <laughs> Let's try that." <laughs> but Satchmo, because one, he's a Leo. Um, I'm a Leo. Bat, bat. Um, Leo's at the table too. <laughs> um, and you know, he, he kind of, he changed the world and that's something that I'm attempting to do here. And then you have Will Corporal. His company is 80 by design. He did the, the painting there, which is fittingly called Grace. And that's what we try to exhibit here on a day-to-day basis for the food, for the process, for each other. And we hope that you guys feel that, like you said, uh, when you walk in the door. So. Well, even seeing the picture of Satchmo, just knowing your history a little bit and knowing how you know you worked in the music industry a little bit, too. It just kind of, like I said, it all just feels very day when I walk in here. Like, that's what I think of immediately, just from our history a little bit, which I think is great. Tell a little bit of your story about that, from going from you know what you've done in the past to how you got here now, as far as you know, working in the music industry, doing some retail stuff, and then getting to this point. How do you make those changes? What caused those changes? That sort of stuff. I think that there's just like this stream of like uh, consciousness or just like passion that if you follow it, it kind of just takes you wherever it takes you. And I think that I've always been creative in some form or fashion. Uh, It just so happened that music was my first love. Music uh, allowed me to express myself and be very brave about, you know, my opinions and to be able to speak them very vocally and profoundly without care for what anybody thought. Um, and that kind of helped me in this position uh, because, as we know, you know, people can say whatever they want about you after an experience that they have with you. And if you're not, um, if your skin is not tough, you can kind of buckle in the, in the weeds of all the criticism. So I've always had this way about me where it's, you know, I'm, excuse my, my French, but it's, you know, I, I really don't give a f- how people may feel. Um, that I have to, you know, get this out of me because it's, it's, it's my thing. Um, it has really nothing to do with you or what you think of it has nothing to do with me. And we kind of just, uh, you know, that kind of helped reinforce just my pathway to kind of just follow my own heart wherever, wherever it went. 
in relation to food and music, I mean, they go hand in hand. They're the same thing, right. you know, honestly. We were talking yeah, earlier, yeah. you were like, your taste in music really yeah. talks, it implies that you can consume it. Yeah. And the way you balance sounds, the way you balance flavors yeah. in the palate. And I thought that was super creative. Um, we are talking about <clears throat> heavy as a sense of ownership. We are coming into your dining room, period. It's very much a, a space where you're being invited into and welcomed into, but it's very much theirs. And I think that's what has made 29 Markle so special is that no one's doing it like you're doing it right now. Mm-hmm. To the point that when they describe it, they don't have a lot of words to mm-hmm. give you. They just, they, they say it's upscale. They say it's new American and I romanticize it. And I'm just like, oh, it's a love letter to the diaspora. Mm-hmm. We're centering and celebrating our comforts in this mm-hmm. French standard. And it's it's something I'm excited about. And I think the community's excited about. Um, how would you classify your cuisine? What makes it new American for you? And how would you define that? New American because, okay, when you think about the history of black people in this country in relation to food and, you know, whether it was getting hand-me-downs or whether it was cooking for presidents or whether it was creating what American food even feels like with Mm -hmm. the South and barbecue and all of that, you get this sense of like, we haven't been recognized for for the contribution to the world, you know, the, the food culture that we contributed to this world. And so New America, because I'm here now and I'm, and I'm an executive I know that's chef, right. You know what I'm saying? And there is a contribution that is very blatantly obvious at this point. And just as American. Right. And mm-hmm. just as American, because I'm American. Right. Mm-hmm. I was born here. Mm-hmm. So it's just that relationship where it's New America for me. And New American because of the stylistics of the food itself, the plating. There's a history of just, you know, rustic New America, American cuisine. So it's a play on, on kind of all those kind of fronts. And you lean into the melting pot with oysters and sake granita. I mean, yeah. Like, America that's crazy. the melting pot of food. Right. I mean, right. we, we have everybody. Right. Yeah. Right. We take right. every cuisine on the planet right. and right. that's American food. Right. You know, right. whether you want a burger, whether you want empanadas, whether you want... You know, it's American. Right. That's American food. That's right. what it is, man. And, and, the, and the menu, you know, it's not huge. And I think that's a smart thing to do because yeah. too many people, I think, try to put everything on the menu. Yeah. You and I have spent <laughs> times driving back from the Hamptons and solving the world's problems in the yeah. car for two hours, three yeah. hours talking about food. And yeah. I know you spent early life being a vegetarian, yep. right? Has any of that influenced kind of the menu here and what you're doing? Absolutely. Because um, we're feeding omnivores. We got to feed everybody. Absolutely. Um, don't, don't hand me none of that nonsense wrapped in kale and, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, when you when you think about vegetables and fruits, man, you, th- you think about God's creation, man. It's so beautiful. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's and like, tasty. And tasty. You <laughs> know That's what I tell my wife about me, too. I'm like, I am God's it's creation. Like, Look how beautiful I am. I'm yeah. so tasty. She doesn't. She doesn't. <laughs> She doesn't go with it. I think, like, you know, the universe <laughs> expressed itself so beautifully in the spring and the summer. And so, like, you know, vegetables and fruits, man, they're just exciting. I became a, a vegetarian, I think, literally from peer pressure from mm. friends I was hanging around, honestly. <laughs> really? Was, yeah. But it was it was good peer pressure because it kind of led me down this entire path, you know, because my parents weren't going to cook vegetarian food for me. They didn't even understand right. what that kind of word doesn't was. exist in the house. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> no. So, you know, I had to, you know, cook for myself and explore for myself. I think the first thing I ever made was like broccoli and tofu. You know, How was that? I mean, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. That was like the first meal I ever made for myself. Came Didn't way. season the tofu. No, it just, just <laughs> how, I'm going to put it in the oven. Let's yeah. see how that goes. Yeah. So, yeah, it just led me down a path of just, you know, excitement for food. 
and we see it. It's so evident, and it's materialized as the 29 Markle. It's evident how it's been received across the state, in New York even. I can't help but congratulate you on all that you've been doing and all that you'll continue to do and how you show up, because it's so important, not only for Bridgeport, but just for the chef culture in general. So we thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for, you know, being an audience and giving me a platform to express myself. So, man, listen, I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. I'm just so excited for you. You deserve it. You definitely, you know, listen. I've watched your face when we're doing catering gigs and how intense you get with it. Like, I know how serious you get. Tevin, I know you over there. You probably see his face, too. He's <laughs> real intense about it, right? And and that's what makes it fun. And and I love to see someone with that passion. Because, dude, if there's one thing Damon Day has got, it's passion. And passion will take you a long way. And I'm so happy for you. Awesome. So we appreciate it, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Damon Day Sawyer, executive chef and co-owner of 29 Markle Court in Bridgeport. Catrice produced that segment, and it was edited by Robin. I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyan Aiken, Katie Tularski, Meg Dalton, Emily Cherish, and Catrice Claudio. Listen to new episodes the first Thursday of every month, or get our episodes delivered to your inbox even sooner by signing up for our newsletter, Full Plate. It's filled with recipes, videos, and advice about growing delicious things to eat in your garden. Go to ctpublic.org food to sign up and see all our food-related content. And to keep up with the latest on Seasoned, follow at CT Public on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And we're also at WNPR on Twitter, or follow the hashtag SeasonedCT on all platforms. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you back here next month. You won't want to miss it. Our next episode is a dream come true for me. I'm talking with the one and only Jacques Pepin. We'll see you right back here next month.